Blessed be the name of the Lord, for He has not left us this day without a Redeemer. What an incredible truth that we will read in the book of Ruth this morning. If you want to turn there to Ruth chapter 4, that's a truth that rings true in the hearts and souls of many gathered in here today, most gathered in here today. That we rejoice in the truth and the fact, the reality that God has not left us without a Redeemer. We give praise to His name for that today. I wonder if any of you are are like I am these days. I have a pretty good sense of direction um, in certain areas, pretty much in Somerset now. But even now in coming Georgia where I grew up, you could kind of just blindfold me and drop me off somewhere and in a matter of minutes, I would know where I am and can get to where I need to go. I, I just kind of have a good sense of direction in that. But one of the things that I've noticed lately is that I'll go somewhere. So this weekend, I was in Memphis, and, and we went to Memphis, and there, I have this feeling where I get to where I'm supposed to be going, and when I get there and get ready to leave, I have no idea where I am. I have no clue how to get where I need to go. Do you know why that is? You know how I got there? Any guesses how I got there to that spot, that location? <laughs> Everybody just said, said their preferred app. <laughs> Waze, GPS. Right, GPS. I, I typed in the address, drove to Shelby Farms in Memphis, Tennessee, got to Shelby Farms, and when it was time to leave, had no idea how to leave because I just followed my little path, right? It's a lot different. In the old days, right, the old days when Steph and I moved out to Fort Worth, Texas, after we got married, we moved and we had something in hand that was a great big app known as the Rand McNally Road Atlas. Has anybody purchased the Rand McNally Atlas before? Right? Okay. The teenagers are like, Rand who? You know, we, we don't know. You guys need to know who Rand McNally is. We should shut your phones off and make you navigate with a Rand McNally Atlas. Well, we did that, and we would look, and we looked at Fort Worth and the blow-up of Fort Worth and Dallas and get in your mind the, how the roads work, and we learned it, right? Why is that helpful? Why is it helpful to, to look at an atlas and to look at the roads and look how everything lays, kind of the lay of the land, and then go and you navigate yourself? Well, the reason it's helpful is because when you do that, you see the big picture, you kind of see the big picture of how everything's laid out, how the roads work together, how they intersect. And because you see the big picture, wherever you are, you can kind of have an idea of where you need to go and how to get there. Well, now we tend to have this very narrow view of just whatever the next direction is. And the most disconcerting, the most frustrating direction you get on GPS today is what? Proceed to the route. If I knew how to proceed to the route, I wouldn't be using you, right? So don't tell me to proceed to what I don't know how to get to. Well, I think a lot of times in life, now, we kind of sit and we're so used to just everything being identified. This is what's going on in my my life. We have such a narrow view that we're just kind of walking with our head down and we're looking at my life and we're focused just on me that when... We are asked to look at the big picture. We don't know where to look. We don't know what the big picture is. We need a big picture view. We need to look outside of ourselves and to see the big picture of what's going on. 
But we can even have that approach to Scripture where we can come in and we can read Scripture and we can read the book of Romans and study the book of Romans and we can come into Ruth and we can study the book of Ruth and and go sermon by sermon by sermon and have a very narrow view in which we come to the Scriptures and we never look at the big picture, the big story of what's going on outside of the, the text in Ruth. Well, today we're going to be forced to look at the big picture. We're going to be forced to look at more than just our own lives. We're going to be forced to look at more than just what is going on here in the book of Ruth. God's going to give us a, a bigger picture, a bigger story that we're a part of. You see, we, we've looked at in our time of Ruth, and we've, we've found several truths. One is on the screen there, right? The, the Kind of the fundamental truth that we've talked about as we've gone through the book of Ruth is that there is hope in the midst of hopelessness for the Christian. But we also looked at the truth that suffering is not final for the Christian. Suffering is not final for the Christian because Christ is final. Because his work on the cross is final. Suffering is not. The, the third truth that we've already covered is that, that God is always working. We talked about God's providence, that he is, he is working in every situation. He is working in all corners of creation. At all times in history, God is working. And then last week, we talked about the truth that Christ is our Redeemer. Christ is our Redeemer. He is the true and better Boaz. And this morning, we turn to our final story. We talked about a story of suffering, a story of providence, and a story of redemption. And today, we look and we see a story in His story. A story that gives us the big picture. The reason this is important is because everything that we've learned about, about hope, about suffering, about providence, and about redemption, they all rest on the foundation that we are a part of God's greater story in history. We are a part of His plan that is being carried out, and we're going to see that in Ruth today. So let's read the conclusion of Ruth, starting in verse 13 of chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. I, I want us to walk through these ending verses And then after we do, I want to give you five implications for our life, five results of knowing God's 
greater story. We, we look at, starting in verse 13, what we see is we see glory given to God for his providential work. We see both the narrator, the writer of the book of Ruth in verse 13, giving glory to God, and then also the characters, the women in the story, blessing the Lord. Now, if, if I don't know if you take note of this, it's just something kind of interesting if you want to think about. The book is, is kind of starts and ends with the writer of Ruth giving glory to God. In, in chapter 1, verse 6 is the only other place that the writer gives the Lord credit, gives glory to the Lord. Every other reference to the Lord in the book is spoken of by the characters in the book of Ruth, by Naomi and Ruth and Boaz and the, the people of the town. But in 1 verse 6, we heard, then she arose and her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. It was God who brought back provision of food to end the famine. Now, in chapter 4, verse 13, the writer reminds us that behind the scenes, everything going on, it was the Lord who gave her conception. Ruth had been without child. We don't know how long she had been married, but she had been without child for whatever reason. Some speculate that she was barren and could not have children. And so the one who had been unable to have children, who had not had a child, now conceives because of the work of the Lord. Now, in verse 14, the women gather and say the same thing. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. The people, the town, the writer, everyone gives God the glory for what he has done. Now, there are a lot of things that happen. There are a lot of things that God did not do in the, or did do in the book of Ruth. There was one thing that we're told he did not do. What is that one thing that God did not do? He did not fail to give them a redeemer. He did not leave Naomi without a redeemer. God, in his grace, intervened in Naomi's life to intercept the tragedy of bitter old age and the end of a family. And he provided a redeemer to redeem her situation. This is the same situation that we see today. It's the reason that we sing of our gracious redeemer. Because he has not left us in a state of tragedy. He has not left us to grow bitter in our old age against life. He has not left us without a family, no matter what it looks like in your particular home or family unit. If you're a single, if you're married, if you're divorced, you are not without family. Because as a Christian, you have been adopted into the family of God. And you cannot be removed from that once you're adopted in. The work of God is to save and redeem. He did not leave Naomi without a redeemer. He did not leave us without a redeemer. Jesus Christ is our redeemer, and so we rejoice in that. Now, I think a, a curious thing, an interesting thing here is in verse 13, 14, 15, when, he's talk, or when the people say, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, they are not referencing Boaz. Boaz is the kinsman redeemer in the book of Ruth. But here, when he says, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer, may his name be renowned in Israel, he shall be to you a restorer of life and nurturer of old age. Why? Because your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Who's the Redeemer? The child. The child is the Redeemer. It's, it's the only time that, that a baby is called the Redeemer in the Old Testament. Every other kinsman redeemer is, is an adult, a brother-in-law who comes in to do what we had talked about last week. But here, the child is referenced to be the redeemer. 
It's looking forward. It's casting our gaze ahead to the security and the well-being that will be brought to Naomi and her lineage through the birth of this child. I don't think we should miss the fact that it is the same for us, that we look to who as our Redeemer, the birth of a child, the birth of Jesus Christ, the one and only Son of of, of God Almighty. We look to a child. Naomi looked to a child and looked forward to what he would do. He would be what? Verse 15, he would be a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. That the tragedy that Naomi faced in chapter 1 was redeemed. So that her life was restored and generations were extended. You see, when she had returned to Bethlehem, when she came back into Bethlehem, she came back as one who was empty, one who was bitter, one who was at the conclusion of her family. She was the conclusion of her family. She had no grandchildren, no heritage, and no hope at that point. She said what? The Almighty's working against me. He is acting against me. She was bitter. But now that has all been redeemed, and this one has come that God has not left her without a Redeemer, and he would be to her a restorer of life and a nourisher of her old age, and that is cause for rejoicing. Then we read in verse 17 that the, the people, the women, named him. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. The story ends. The conclusion is written. The credits roll. And our story of Ruth is over. Or is it? Do I have any Marvel movie fans in here? You like Marvel movies? Yeah. You do? That's great, buddy. They're, they're fun to watch. But you know what every Marvel movie has at the end? You guys know this, right? Marvel movie fans never leave the theater when the credits roll, right? What do you do? You sit in there. Why do you sit? It's not over, right? There's something else. There's a a brief scene, maybe a 30-second scene, a one-minute scene that reminds you that you just watched a a two-hour movie that was really interesting, a great story, but... Hello, it's just one component of this big picture, this big narrative, this big story. And there's other things happening that you need to be aware of, and all of a sudden you're connecting what happened in that movie to this one and that, and this story and this, and you're going, oh my goodness, I can't believe this. And you're looking forward, you go, oh, what's going to happen in the next? Oh, it's a cliffhanger. The, the same thing happens here. We get to the end of Ruth, and there's this statement that says they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. It's over. That's it. But then the the writer says, oh, no, no. The credits may have rolled, but let's take a step back and let's see what's really going on here. These are the generations of Perez. Now, this is an intentional reminder here. I don't know if you remember who Perez is. I honestly, in my mind, had kind of forgotten about this when I was studying. I was reminded that Perez brings us to one of the most scandalous chapters in all of Scripture. What is this? It's scandalous. He could have, listen, when he says the generations of Perez, it would have been very easy for him to say the generations of Judah and to start. But he picks Perez because why? In Genesis 38, we find the story of the fact that Judah fathers Perez and his twin brother Zerah by Tamar, his daughter-in-law. It is a scandalous chapter. And so you have Perez and he says, listen, these are the generations of Perez. A scandalous memory in the minds of the people. 
Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, and Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon, Boaz, Boaz, Obed, Obed, Jesse, Jesse, David. And he brings us back and he reminds us that, listen, God has, is working in the midst of his people's sinful choices. People make sinful choices. They make bad decisions. They live in sin. But God is providentially working in the midst of that. And there's a bigger story going on than the book of Ruth. Boaz is great. Naomi, great. Ruth, great. But they are not the center of the story. God is the center of the story. When he goes through this genealogy, Boaz is just another name in the list. He's just there. He's just right, riddling on right names, name, 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 name. And there he is. Listen, as a, as a teaser for you next week, we're starting the book of Matthew next week. And we're going to work through Matthew. Well, guess what's in Matthew 1? The genealogy. Guess what is in there? This same statement. And we're going to look at that next week. This is a part of a bigger picture, a bigger story. We need to understand that the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz is a story in his story. It's a part of God's greater story. And the conclusion of Ruth reminds us that God was doing way more then than any of these characters could have imagined or could have dreamed. And he is doing way more now than any of us in here can imagine and dream. God is a great and a mighty and an awesome God. And he is doing great and mighty and awesome wonders and deeds and things in history to carry out his plan and his purpose. And we people are a part of it. (laughs) that's amazing that is a beautiful thing to behold they couldn't see everything he was doing you remember that the characters they didn't see all of this they didn't know what was happening they they were just living their life in the moment they couldn't see all of God's plans they couldn't trace all of his steps it's the same thing that the psalmist says in Psalm 77 19 where he says your way was through the sea your path through the great waters yet your footprints were unseen It was the basis for William Cowper writing God Moves in a Mysterious Way, the the hymn that we quoted in the very first sermon that we sang the first two weeks, that he wrote this. He said, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unsearchable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. What a beautiful statement that God is working. He puts his, he steps through the sea, walks through the sea, and we don't see his footprints, but we know that God is working. We know that he is moving. We know that he is doing great wonders anew. And we rejoice in that. We rest in that. And we have to learn to trust his plan even when we can't see what he is doing. You see, we have hope in the midst of hopelessness because we know that we are a part of God's greater story. It's not just about us. Do you know that story? Do you know the story you're a part of? Do you, have you stepped back from Scripture? Are you one that just studies little bits and pieces of it and verse by verse, but you don't know the full story that you are a part of? Do you know that greater story that talks about the holy, eternal, omnipotent God creating all things out of nothing, creating man in his image, in his likeness, in fellowship with him, perfect, beautiful, unhindered fellowship, looking and saying, it is good, it is very good. But then man rebels against him, 
sins and, and is separated from him. And as time goes on, man's sin is deeper and deeper and deeper, so much so that God judges man through a great flood, but he shows his wonderful mercy in preserving the family of Noah. Noah is given life. He's preserved through the flood. Man is fruitful and multiplies to the point that he rises up again and in his pride constructs this great mighty tower to make a name for himself and God destroys that tower in Babel, confuses languages, man is dispersed. In the course of time, God does a work and calls out Abraham to make a people of his own possession, to be the father of many nations in whom God would bring blessing to all nations. It says your generations, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. God calls out Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, He continues to fashion and form a people for himself, a people who eventually are in bondage, enslaved in Egypt, who he redeems to give us the picture of redemption, to help us understand what redemption looks like through the coming and sending of Moses to redeem his people, a people that come back and inherit the promised land that he had promised, a a people who continue to rebel in that promised land, and God sends judges the people continue to rebel and seek after a king. They want a king to be like the other nations. And so God gives them a king. And then we have the, the story of king after king after king who fails to be the king that God has called them to be. That a king is not the answer. God sends forth prophet after prophet after prophet calling the people to repentance. The people go through this great period of of religious sacrifices, trying to pay and atone for their sins. For years and years and years, they're trying to atone for their sin. The prophets are calling to them to repentance, to return to the Lord, to seek the Lord with all their heart. And it is to no avail. The people are not doing it. The people are wallowing in sin because they are helpless to do it on their own. They cannot save themselves. So God sends forth His Son. His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect, sinless life, and to die a sacrificial, substitutionary death on the cross for the sins of His people, to die as a ransom for many, and to raise victoriously three days later from the grave. To conquer death, He appears to His disciples, to over 500 people, in the course of 40 days, and then he ascends into heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father where he now resides as he is given the great commission for his people to carry forth the gospel, to expand the kingdom, to advance the kingdom of God among all nations, every tribe, every tongue, every language around the earth. We are called to advance the kingdom of God, to advance the gospel for the glory of God and the good of the lost. That's where we are. That's the part of the story we are in, and we know the end. We have been given the final pages where we know that the victory is his, that Christ returns. He comes in victory. He comes in power to tread in his wrath on those who are not his and to call his to his own. That's the story, that ultimately he will redeem us, and you, brothers and sisters, are a part of that story. You're a part. I'm a part of that story. There is more happening than just right now. There's more happening than my life. I'm not walking around in this narrow focus of just me, 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 me. But I'm walking around knowing that I am part of God's greater story. And we are all a part of his greater story. 
And there are five reasons I want to give you today that it is important to know his greater story and to know that you are a part of it. There's five reasons. Here's the first one. Knowing God's greater story gives us faith when we cannot see. It gives us faith when we cannot see. Why would a famine come? Why do we have to go to Moab? Why would Ruth have to follow me and not just stay with her own people? Why is God doing all this? Why is he acting that he's against me? Why did we happen to come to Boaz's field? Why, why, why? Well, they don't know. They don't know all this stuff. But what we learn in Ruth is that God's providence is best seen in hindsight. We look back and we see the beautiful providential working of God. And we need to learn to let the 2020 vision of hindsight increase our faith when we're blinded to God's ways. When we can't see his ways, when it doesn't make sense, we don't understand the reasons, we have to look to 2020 hindsight of God's providence. And we look back and we see how God's worked in the past. It should inform and increase our faith today. It's the heart of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, where, where God says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Don't lean on your understanding. There are times where I simply do not understand. I sit back and I go, God, why? I don't know. I don't know. But what I do know is that God is working, and so that gives me faith when I look back and I see the accounts of Ruth, or I see how he's worked in my own life, or I see how he's worked in your life, or I see how he's worked in this church being here. Times of immense darkness that now we gather and we worship and we praise and we exalt the name of the Lord. We look back and we see God's providential hand, and it increases our faith when we cannot see in the present. The second result. The second result of knowing God's greater story is that knowing God's greater story reminds me that his providential care includes me, but is not centered on me. That's important. His providential care includes me, but it is not centered on me. I think for me, the most helpful way to understand this is the idea of stepping stones in a flower garden. Every one of those stepping stones is important. They, they serve a vital role. But none of those stepping stones is the goal or the focal point of that garden. You don't walk up to somebody's flower garden and go, ooh, wow, look at that stepping stone. That is an amazing stepping stone. Wow, I've never seen a stepping stone like that. No. That stepping stone plays an important role. It's a part of the garden, but it's not the focal point. It's not the center of it. I am a part of God's story. I am an important part of God's story. He uses me, but I am not the center of God's story. You're not the center of God's story. That's a news flash. If you're walking around like the world revolves around you, you need to wake up and stop being delusional and realize it does not center around you. It doesn't center around me. We center around God and his greater story. That's why, that's why we love the verse in Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. We don't come and go, hey, give me glory. Give me glory, I'm a great guy. Give me glory because you should like me. Give me glory because I did this. No, we go and we say give God glory because of his greatness, his love, his faithfulness. And do you know what verses 2 and 3 say? Shocker of all shocker, they exalt and God for his prop, exalt God and give glory to God for his providential work, his authority, his sovereignty. He says, why should the nation say, where is their God? 
our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. <laughs> we, we worship and exalt God because he is a great and a mighty God. He does all he pleases. He accomplishes his plans. He reigns. He rules. He is sovereign in power. There is no one greater than him. There is no one who can rival him. And so we worship him. We don't worship ourselves. We're a part of his greater story. Part of his greater story. A story that includes us but does not center on us. The third result. Knowing God's greater story helps us know our role. It helps us know our role. You see, know, knowing God's greater story is, is a reminder and it's God shouting, stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. You hear that? You know what I'm saying, right? Stay in your lane. You take care of what you're responsible for. Let God take care of what he is responsible for. Know your role. You see, God's role is to work everything out. His role is to carry out his plan and his purpose to perfection in his goodness and his grace and his wisdom and his sovereign rule. My role is simply to be faithful today. Listen to the Matthew chapter 6. You can write down in your notes 6, 25 to 34, but I just want to read verse 30 to 33 to you this morning. It's, it's, a, it's a passage where we're called not to be anxious. Don't worry about things. And in the passage in Matthew, and we'll come to this later, but, but it says, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. This is essentially a, a passage that reminds us of the same thing. We need to stay in our lane. We need to know our role. What is our role and what's God's role? God's role is to providentially care for all things. It's to carry out his plan according to his purpose and his will. And my purpose, my role is to simply seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. I don't need to worry about all that. I just trust the Lord and live my life to be faithful today to do what God's called me to do. There's a lot of things. Again, there's a lot of things I don't understand. There's a lot of questions I have. There's a lot of unanswered questions and a lot of things that I think about what's, going to, what's it going to be like in a year from now or five years from now or when I have grandkids, what is the world going to look like? I don't know. But that's not my job. My job is to be faithful today to seek out the kingdom of the Lord, to live in his righteousness, to be faithful today with what he's called me to and to trust him to do what he said he will do. So I need to stop worrying about things that I can't control. It's not my job. The fourth result is that knowing God's greater story reminds us that God does all things well. God does all things well. I mean, think about all the moments in Scripture that are seemingly tragic, where God's people go through suffering. But then you get to the end of the story and you sit back and go, wow, God is an awesome and a gracious and a mighty God. He does all things well. He does all things well. Ruth concludes with all of Naomi and Ruth's problems resolved and pointing forward to King David. 
Their, their, their lot in life is resolved. The bitterness is turned to rejoicing. Loneliness is overtaken by family. And hopelessness is turned to hope. The book of Ruth casts our gaze away from the suffering that we're in right now and towards the wonders of God's plan. It reminds us that there is a greater story going on and that God is a God who redeems our pain and brokenness for His sake and His glory and our good. Listen, you need to know that you might be in the midst of brokenness now. You may be in a time of grief and a time of suffering, but you need to know that there is light at the end of the tunnel. There will be a better day. God does all things well. He does all things well, and we can trust him to do that. You need to know that Romans 8, 28 is really, truly, actually, truly, 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 true. God really does work all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He really does that, and he does it well because he is good, and he is wise, and he is able. God does all things well. The last result of knowing God's greater story is that it teaches us not to limit the purposes of God to only be about working in my life. It it teaches us not to limit the purposes of God to be only about working in my life. Do you remember when we talked about asking better questions? We talked about how unfruitful and unhealthy it can be just to ask why why god why and just to stay there that's a real question it's an important question but it's not a question we stay at right we move past that question to ask better questions where is god leading what is he doing where is he where is he right now what's he teaching me asking better questions when we ask those better questions we need to open our eyes to a bigger perspective We need to not only ask better questions, but we need to open our eyes to a bigger perspective. The most vivid example of this in my life was I had the opportunity one time to go and to to watch um, uh, Dr. Huffman do eye surgery. And he had this little, I don't don't remember what it's called, like a buddy scope or something like that. But he's doing surgery, looking through a microscope. And I'm just kind of over here sitting there watching. And I was watching and going, this is pretty cool, but I could probably do this. And, you know, looking and... And then all of a sudden, I had this realization. It's like, oh, I'm looking at a, in a microscope. I wonder what's really going on out there. And I took a step back, and then I see everything that's going on and everything that Mark's doing and everybody, they're doing their thing. And, and like, his hands aren't really moving. It's like they're in the microscope, they're moving, but here they're not. And then I see the big picture of what's going on, right? And I go, wow, there's more than just what I'm seeing. There's a lot more going on. There's more people involved. There's this nurse and that nurse and this nurse and that nurse and the anesthesiologist and all these things are happening and here I am just watching. I couldn't do this. Well, listen, we need to have a bigger perspective. We need to step away from the microscope and not just look at our little lives. I'm not the key to interpreting God's plan for the entire history of mankind. <laughs> it doesn't all center around me. It's not like I go, okay, let's look at all that God's done in the past and all he's going to do in the future and all he's doing in the, is it seven, over seven billion people in the world? All he's doing and acting and raising up a church among all nations, everything he's doing. And, and I'm so thankful that it's all centered around me and, and that I'm the key to it. <laughs> no, no, wake up. 
wake up. It's not all around us. It's not centered on us. There's a lot more going on. I love what Sinclair Ferguson said in his book. He said, the explanation for much that takes place in our lives lies well beyond our own lives and may be hidden from us all through our lives. For God does not mean to touch only our lives by what he does in us. He has the lives of others in view, even those yet unborn. Are, are you ready? Are you in a spot where you would say, you know what, God, I, I realize that everything I'm going through right now may actually be intended to be for the good of this person. Would, would, would I be so trusting of God to say, God, use me now and do what you need to do in my life. God, it may involve suffering. It may involve difficulty. It may involve deep sorrow. But God, would you please use me so that the coming generations would look and see you? Could it be that God is doing something so magnificent in your life, in your home, in your family right now that your grandchildren will one day gather around their living room and somebody, your, your child will tell them, hey, you, did I ever tell you about when grandpa and grandma went through this time and they clung to the Lord in the midst of that time and it was a time of deep sorrow and their faith never wavered. They persevered through that time and they loved Jesus above all things and they glorified him and trusted him in the midst of the trial and they clung to him and they are now rejoicing before the throne of God Almighty and oh man, I hope that you do the same. <laughs> we need a bigger perspective. We need to remember that the works that God does among us may be for people beyond us so we gather today as a people with all sorts of stories we gather today with some suffering we gather today with some grieving some hurting some confused some fearful of tomorrow We have lots of stories, some just uncertain, some asking hard questions about life, about God, about the Word, about truth, reality. And I hope you remember that in the midst of your situation, remember there is hope in the midst of hopelessness. Remember that suffering is not final remember that god is always working always remember that christ is our redeemer he's our redeemer look to christ the only one able to save your soul and remember that you are a part of God's greater story. There's more going on than my life and your life. But thanks be to God, we are a part of it. We're a part of it. Don't forget. And don't forget that the reason that all of those truths are true and good is Christ.
is Christ. Youth worship teams will come up to close us in singing. And we're going to rejoice in the fact that in the midst of suffering, we know the great and glorious truth that all we have is Christ. In the midst of uncertainty and not knowing what's going on, we can stand with confidence knowing that all I have is Christ and He is my Redeemer. He has saved me and He reigns. He is a true and a better Boaz. He is our gracious Redeemer and we cling to Him. Let's pray. God, we worship You. We exalt You. We thank You that You have a greater story that we are a part of, God, that that you are working out all of your plans, all of your purposes, and you do all things well. And we rest in that. We rejoice in that. God, I pray that today we would be mindful of your providential work. That, God, we would stand trusting in you. That, God, those who are here today that are grieving, those who are here today that are are lonely, those who are here that are suffering, God, those who have questions, God, those who are fearful, God, that they would all come to you and trust you and know that you are their redeemer, that you are a great and mighty God, that you do all things well, that you are working and you are carrying out your plans and your purposes. So God, give us faith to trust you and confidence in you, to look to you and know that you are are a great and a good and a mighty and a merciful and a wise God. Increase our faith today, we pray. Because all we have is you. All we have is Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.